You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast, available free on iTunes. Welcome back to another episode of Seattle Growth Podcast, Season 6, which is focused on finding community in a dynamic city. I'm Jeff Schulman, a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business, and today's episode may be the first ever Seattle Growth Podcast episode that could save your life. I sit down with Cindy Barker, who talks about the Seattle Emergency Hubs. She's not only bringing Seattleites together, she is preparing them for when disaster strikes. In this interview, you will learn the surprising amount of time that you should be prepared to survive in case of emergency on your own, and how you could find the people who could help you through such an event. To lighten things up a bit, I also sit down with artist Connie Valines. She's put on the Seattle International Dance Festival and several other dance festivals here in Seattle. She shares lessons that all Seattle residents can learn from the local dance community. Whether you've lived here your whole life or are just joining this city, these interviews give insight about Seattle, how it was, how it is changing, and where it is going. Before we get to the first interview, I want to share some exciting developments regarding On the Brink, a documentary about the changes in Seattle's Central District that I produced and co-directed with Stephen Fong. We sold out the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute for our premiere. We then sold out the 200-plus capacity at the Northwest African American Museum. And now, thanks to the Seattle Theater Group, you have a chance to see On the Brink on Thursday, August 15th, as part of Nights at the Neptune. Given the previous showings have sold out days before the screenings, secure your tickets today at www.onthebrinkmovie.com slash screenings. That's www.onthebrinkmovie.com slash screenings. Now, to get a sense of the community around being prepared for emergencies, join me as I sit down with Cindy Barker. I am here with Cindy Barker who is a volunteer at the Seattle Emergency Communication Hubs. Uh, Cindy, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. So why don't we start, Seattle is seeing an influx of people and money to the city. Tell me about what brought you to Seattle. I came back in uh, 1994. I was actually living out in the Covington area, got divorced. I worked at Boeing at the time, and uh, I was stationed in uh, the Kent Valley, but there was rumblings that I could be moved anywhere. And I was told West Seattle was the perfect location to be able to get to the Renton plant, the Everett plant, and the Kent plant all in the same amount of time. So that that was a great place to start looking. And I really enjoyed the neighborhood. So that's where I moved. So you moved to West Seattle in 1994 to be centrally located to wherever else you might be relocated. Um, what changes have struck you most in the time you've been here? It's uh, certainly grown. Um, I was involved in neighborhood planning, and so there was a really great sense of the neighborhood's solidity and identities. And with the growth, um, that community nature has had a hard time keeping up. It's really a hard time rolling people into the conversation at community level. And speaking of community, what we're here to talk about is building community in a dynamic city. And you are volunteering a ton of your time to not just building community, which is valuable in its own right, but building community around being prepared for emergencies. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing. Well, the, the history is a really important part of it. The Nisqually earthquake woke a lot of folks up back in 2001, and it was uh, the realization that we live in earthquake zones and that the first responders are going to be really overwhelmed trying to reach everybody. 
And in the West Seattle neighborhood, our police uh, precinct was really clear about you community folks are going to have to be the leaders. You will be the ones who will be the first point of contact for most of your neighbors around what happened, how to help each other. And so it took until 2006 with a real major windstorm in West Seattle where we went, oh, they weren't kidding. <laughs> we were <laughs> without power for about two weeks. Wow. And, and it turned out that neighbors showed up in the street or down at the local grocery store trying to help each other. Or we were all trying to exchange information about what restaurant had opened because if you couldn't cook, you could at least go buy a meal. And that turned out to be the genesis of part of what the hubs came to be is gathering places so neighbors can collect to help neighbors. And that that treed off of my work as I'd been involved with my community group for since 1994. And it was just more community building, but that different sense of it's not just every day, we're going to have to pull together in a big disaster. And what's the history of this emergency communication hub? Did somebody else start it and now you have gotten really involved or? Well, I was one of like three legs that was going on in West Seattle. We we kind of decided that we were going to set up these locations and call them hubs, and we had nine when we first started. And the city of Seattle was observing what we were doing, and they were also uh, working with two other groups. One was in Queen Anne Magnolia, and they had gotten a grant to write a preparedness plan as a re outgrowth of the Nisqually earthquake. So they were doing this planning, but they didn't actually you know, know what they were going to do with the plan once it was done. They were kind of right in the middle. And there was another group um, in Wallingford, and they were working around vulnerable populations, particularly seniors. They had a big senior center at the time. So the city connected us, and, and we, start, we started meeting on a regular basis. And between the three of us, we set up 21 hubs, and I learned how to write a better plan. And we went, oh, we, we kind of said, we're thinking about the seniors in West Seattle. And it helped uh, Queen Anne have a place to execute their plan. So that was how the, how the hubs came together. And so it was those three neighborhoods. And as, as we got uh, a little bit of money from the city council to, you know, put in some equipment, you know, just like basically a pop-up shelter at a table and some uh, radio equipment, more people started finding out about what we were doing and asking, well, can we join in? And that was how it started to grow as we weren't out trying to recruit people, but as community groups learned about it. That was how they started with, they, they did the same thing. Oh, we're going to need to help each other. This is a really easy way to do it. And talk, talk me through the first steps you took towards building this community. How did you find people? How did you communicate to them? How did you bring people on board to your vision of, hey, there's this thing that might happen. Let's get ready for it. In my West Seattle example, we had um, district councils. And so uh, at the district council, there's usually 12 community groups sitting around the table. And in West Seattle, we had the Delridge District Council and the Southwest District Council. So I went to both of those and said, who'd like to sponsor a hub? This is all it is. It's so easy. And, and that was where we got nine different community groups to say, that makes sense. We'll do it. And the others just weren't at a place where they wanted to do it then. Since then, we've grown to 15 hubs in West Seattle. And so it really just became, hey, would you come talk to our community group? And so many of them are sponsored by existing community groups, faith-based organizations, or sometimes um, cultural groups that have decided this made sense for them. But the key that we end up saying is, even though you've gathered to help each other, you need to make sure you're talking personal preparedness to everybody. And then Seattle's got a program called Seattle Neighbors Actively Prepared, which is a block-level preparedness program. So very quickly we learned the message is 
in a disaster, come to a hub, you can help your neighbors, but make sure you're prepared and you've plugged in with your neighbors so that you can come into the hub as a, as a volunteer more than someone who's needing help. So you start with the, these existing groups, build nine hubs in West Seattle, plug into what's going on with Seattle as a city. What's the community look like now? We have active hubs that practice. We have um, 56 of them. And the city, uh, I don't remember the year, I think it was like 2012 or 13, they looked at kind of where the active hubs were growing and said, you know, this concept of having a community gathering place really resonated with them. They didn't have the bandwidth to, you know, activate them. But what they decided to do was name all the pea patch gardens in Seattle to be community gathering places. So we have kind of two models. One's a community gathering place where just show up and smart human beings will figure out what to do to help each other. And then we have the communication hubs, which actually practice more. And we try and use radio as a a communication tool. And talk to me about the feelings that you've had as you've seen this grow and as you've engaged more people in not just being ready for what comes next, but coming together as we're trying to build towards that. It's a little good news, bad news. I mean, it's fantastic to see community grow around this topic because it kind of transcends all sorts of issues, right? It is just about building a resilient community. The bad news is it's really hard to engage with certain populations. We have very few active hubs in high dense areas. And, you know, it's part of the the modern city we live in, um, high mobility folks, um, folks who are so overbooked <laughs> with what they do, you know, this is a low priority for them. And then there's people who we have problems reaching because we're not really super good on social media. You know, just there's populations that are just harder to reach than others. And so that's a stressor for us is, is we know that they could be prepared if we could find a way to engage them. Let's talk about the community aspect of this. So you've got so many people moving to the city, so much money moving into the city. And sadly, there's a lot of people also moving out. And so there are many people looking for a, a way to feel like they belong in this city. Talk about the feelings that you've had and what you've seen about the community being built around this. It's actually been harder. Uh, when you build a hub, it is really exciting to see that because people are interested and engaged in helping their neighbor. So it builds that strength. And we do practices where people can casually walk by and go, what's going on? And they get pulled in by that. But for us as a hub network, it's harder and harder to actually um, coordinate and help each other because just we've, we've had to go to virtual meetings because it takes so long to get across Seattle to have an evening meeting now. And, and that's actually a deterrent because while you want to keep up on the information – that social engagement of us exchanging, you know, what did you do and what are the tips you've got on your outreach tables? You miss that in a, in a virtual environment. So the, the, the larger city has almost forced us to start breaking down into subsets. You know, so in the southwest sector, I can deal together or the southeast sector, those hubs can meet together. And we actually had to go to that model where every other month we meet in the sectors And then on the odd months, we have our full city hub captain meeting. I want to give you a chance, before we get to lessons that somebody could learn from your experience building this out and and strengthening this community, I want to give you a chance to kind of plug the Seattle Emergency Communications Hubs. Why should somebody get involved? How can they get involved? And what would they do? What would they get 
once they're involved. We have so many people out there who have incredible talents and skills. And so in a disaster, you never know what you're going to need. I mean, a, a person who will say, I have no skills, when you start talking to them, they go, oh, you organize stuff. Oh, you know how to deal with children. Oh, and all those things are going to be needed. It won't matter. I mean, we will find a use for anybody. The ability to know that you are a value in a time of disaster is really, really important. And people shouldn't forget that. And even if they can't engage in a long, you know, come to every meeting or whatever, just knowing where to go to help is really important. So I live in North Seattle. If something goes down and you need somebody on the radio or a podcast, I'm, I'm your man. But otherwise, I'm pretty useless. Oh. <laughs> so uh, how could I find my people who will survive uh, the apocalypse and help me carry me through? Well, one of the places we have, one of the cool things that our group invented was a thing called a NeighborLink map. And so our website is seattleemergencyhubs.org. And the map shows you all the hub locations and lets you see who the hub captain is and contact him. But it also tells you who all the active prepared block level groups are around it. So you can go to where you live and where you work, because you could be at work in a disaster, and find out where the nearest location is. And then on our website, and we have a newsletter where we tell people we have a field drill coming up, a field exercise where we get out in the field and we actually practice what we think we are going to do. And we need people we call community actors to show up and go, hi, you know, I, I have a chainsaw. What would you like me to do? Right? So we know we could find something for you to do. You look to me like a greeter. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, What are some ways that I could get prepared or the listeners can get prepared um, so that they can contribute to the hubs once yep. they haven't. FEMA has changed its uh, messaging. It used to be three days, three ways. We almost all grew up with that. After Katrina, after uh, Sandy, it's now two weeks. Wow. Be prepared to be on your own for two weeks. And many of us remember the New Yorker article, you know, everything West is going to be toast. It, if there's a Cascadia subduction zone earthquake, that's pretty close to correct because the FEMA and the first responders that come from outside the region will be out at the coast. That, that's where the major damage is going to be. So it's going to take time for folks to get into Seattle to help. Our, our Office of Emergency Management Director, Bar Graff, very good, very good, very skilled at what she does. She has a message that really sinks at home. There's 204 firefighters on duty at any time in Seattle. We have over 800,000 people. You know, do that ratio, right? So you just need to be prepared to have, and the three essential things now that they really used to be go buy this big kit with massive, you know, like fingernail clippers. No, make sure you've got food and water. You won't survive without those things. Make sure you're thinking about what your kids need, your seniors need, your pets need, and that includes medicines, right? So it's food, water, medicines. It's what's, what do you need to survive? Everything else you might be uncomfortable because you're cold, but you need to survive. So that's the food and the water for two weeks. And so do they recommend storing water for the two weeks or uh, having like home purifiers that like the, the grail cups that you could purify it's or the definitely, EV? It's both. Um, the life straws are good, but if you're not near a body of water, you know, especially like take Capitol Hill, right? You know, where is a water resource going to be? So you, you kind of have to go both ways. And then some of the hubs, we, we actually have partnered with uh, Sustainable Seattle on a couple of events. And at one of them, we had a cargo bike contest. 
And part of what they did was teach people how to make uh, mass water filters, you know, using sand filtration systems. So the more people who have camped, who know how to do sustainability, uh, agriculture, those are the, all the people who show up at a hub and we're going to say, you know what? looks like we're going to be out wa- without water for a while. Can you guys go build that cistern you've been talking about? Yeah. For the audience who might watch The Walking Dead like I do, <laughs> uh, Rick Grimes. I've got to find my Rick Grimes who's going to lead me to safety during these two weeks. Can I find that through these hub links on this map that you talked about? Is that what that's partly about, is finding the person who could survive this? Well, it's not the others. person. I mean, we'll tell you who who runs the hub near you, right? They're mostly concerned about making our, – our commodity is really information in a disaster. Who's got what? Who needs what? Who just watched what bridge go down so we can tell people, you can't get to the hospital going over that bridge anymore. you got to go a different way. But there are all sorts of websites out there with people who are interested in, you know, the prepper kind of mentality and the homeless. The homeless people still know how to put up tarps. I mean, when I do tabling and I have folks come up and they actually ask, you know, like, well, you want me to come to a hub? And I'm like, you're number one. You know, you have some skills that a lot of us... My camping skills are, you know, like pop-up tent camper now, not, you know, strike the tent. So everybody in the, ci- in the city's got a skill. That's all I can say. And, and remind me of the website again? SeattleEmergencyHubs.org. Tell me a little bit about maybe one or two lessons you've learned that could be helpful for someone who's looking for a sense of community in this dynamic city. So you've built a community centered around getting together and practicing and being prepared for an emergency uh, what could somebody learn if they're just looking for a sense of community here? Well, we don't. the hubs don't meet that often, right? But that's where you do get a sense of community. I mean, whether you're meeting online or you're meeting virtually, it's reaching out and talking to people about areas of common interest. And one of the other aspects of it is just problem solving. I mean, we just kind of are like problem solving people. And so when you pose people a question, and I'll give an example – how would you coordinate uh, and control volunteers who've shown up that you're about to send out to do some light search and rescue? How would you make sure they're safe and come back? So you pose that to a group of people, and you've got really smart minds who will help you figure that problem out, and then we can share it with everybody else around the hub. So community grows by meeting people, learning their connections, learning their skills, and really just engaging in an activity that you know is going to better your community. Any concluding thoughts? You know, if I was going to sum things up, I would say be really sensitive to what's going on in your community. Um, A lot of people have stopped reading the local news. We've lost uh, some of the local reporting. Um, I'm fortunate in West Seattle because we have the West Seattle blog. But you have to stay engaged with what's going on in your neighborhood to be sensitive to what are the issues. Um, It used to be situations would change, you know, in maybe a five or 10 year cycle. That's getting much faster. And so just being able to know what are the new dynamics coming into your neighborhood, what has left your neighborhood that maybe needs to be replaced, being engaged is really a key thing. And that that goes across homeowners, renters, you know, you know, hanging out. If your mother-in-law lives with you, you know, she needs to be engaged, too. If you're disassociated from your society, you just become isolated and that can be a dangerous situation. Cindy, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. Thank you. My next guest offers a deeper look into Seattle's thriving dance community. Before we get to this interview, I want to remind you that if you missed out on the sold-out red carpet premiere of On the Brink or the sold-out screening at the Northwest African American Museum, you could catch On the Brink at the Neptune Theater on Thursday, August 15th. 
Head to www.onthebrinkmovie.com slash screenings to get tickets. As written in Crosscut, the history lesson here is one all Seattleites would benefit from learning. And as Margaret Larson implored her audience on King 5's New Day Northwest, please go see this film. Get your tickets ahead of time at www.onthebrinkmovie.com. Now, join me as I sit down with Connie Valines. I'm here with Connie Valines. She's an artist here in Seattle doing dance, film, TV, many hats. And we're talking about building community in a dynamic city. And she has built community in the world of dance, uh, notably as the managing director of the Seattle International Dance Festival, but also several other dancing outlets that we're going to hear talk about here in a moment. Connie, thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so we're going to talk about building community in a dynamic city. But first, what brought you to Seattle? I'm actually originally from Europe. I was born in Germany, moved to California initially, lived there. I wanted to work in film. That was uh, why I came to the U.S. I lived in the Bay Area first, moved down to L.A., worked, started working in film, independent film, got burned out really quickly. Uh, too much work, uh, too little pay. It was just too hard. Um, and But continued in that medium, so I really wanted to continue working in film. Um, had always had a dance background, but that was a little bit put aside at that time. Um, and then moved between cities, uh, met my now husband, and uh, then ended up in Seattle, uh, mainly because we both did not want to go back to L.A. at that time, but we really liked living in the West Coast. So Seattle seemed to be a great place to raise kids since we had kids at the time. So that's how we got here. And, and what year was that? That was 2009. In the last seven years, notably, Seattle has grown and changed dramatically. What changes have you found most striking? Aside from just the, you know, visual changes that the city has undergone, I think, I mean, just South Lake Union, I remember, I, we do a lot of stuff with South Lake Union uh, with the festival. Uh, when I initially started working with the festival, it was nobody was in South Lake Union. And uh, we were the only ones there trying to you put something up and um and so now you have all these sky risers there and all those kind of things so i learned from that um it's i think i've personally gone through different phases of like you know how how is it living in the city um but i think people are generally still the same you know traffic has gotten worse too <laughs> all right so south lake union which actually inspired this podcast so mm -hmm. i Lived in South Lake Union from 2006 until 2012. Huh. Uh, and then when I went back to just see it, like I hadn't gone, and then several years later, every yep. building around where I lived, uh, different. You are the managing director of Seattle International Dance Festival, which is mm -hmm. one uh, way that you're building community and, and bringing people together. Tell me a little bit more about it. Yeah, so uh, the Seattle International Dance Festival, SIDF, that we call it, uh, is uh, in its 14th year this year. I've been uh, with the festival since 2011. What drew me to the festival was the international aspect of it. So as I mentioned, I kind of went film and television route, uh, worked in television for a while. And then when I came back to Seattle, or when I came to Seattle, I really wanted to get back to my dance roots. I grew up uh, in the dance studio. My mom had a dance studio I was growing up. And uh, that was really something that kind of I felt lost uh, while I was in all these other cities around the U.S. and made sure that when I came back here, I would find a home where I could uh, not only dance myself, but be involved in, in that way as well. And uh, met Cyrus Kambata. He is the artist artistic director of SIDF, 
we met uh, through dance, actually, and um, I just said to him one day, hey, do you want to go get some coffee? I would love to hear more about the festival. Um, and we talked, and he was like, yeah, I kind of am running this by myself, so do you want to help me do this? And I was really excited about that. Uh, I know there were festivals happening in Seattle at that time uh, for dance, but uh, none of them had international artists come in. So that really interested me with my background being from Europe. And what kind of dance is it? Is it f- flossing <laughs> and uh, the popping? Uh, yeah. oh, no. um, the hype dance? I don't know. Well, my kids come back with a different dance from Fortnite uh, oh, yeah. every week. Oh, um, right. that, that one with the leg <laughs> and the arm. I don't. Yeah. I can't do it. Um, no, it's contemporary dance. So uh, modern is what other people call it. It's um, it's uh, we. It, it's a strictly contemporary dance uh, festival, but we are trying to, and this is kind of where the community aspect comes into, we're trying to reach out of that one as well. Um, we have, uh, the festival runs for 17 days every June, so we actually just closed on Saturday. It was our final performance for this year. Um, and we, um, we every time think about things how can we incorporate other dance forms as well and one of the big things is we have during the opening weekend we have which we call art on the fly it's actually an outdoor portion of the festival all the other performances are indoors in a theater um and during that we uh, go to southwick union we put on this whole day of dance at denny park and have several stages and several dance performances and other artists musical artists interactive events and uh, during that time we also branch out to other dance forms so we have uh, irish step or popping hip-hop um bali works Bali, you know, wood, I mean, there's different ones in that range. So salsa, anything that's that's dance-related or workout-related, that's the time when we invite those folks to come in and show us their form. And this is a stupid question for somebody whose life is about dance, but what does contemporary dance mean? <laughs> How can we help somebody who's listening and can't see what what is contemporary dance? Yeah, so I, I, I don't know if I have, like, the dictionary description in my head but um it's you know based uh, dance is based in in uh, ballet um, in classical ballet training and then uh that branched out at a time where um uh, dance was uh, you know given more of an uh was allowed to be more free um it didn't have to be uh, a man and a woman dancing uh, certain steps. It didn't have to be that the woman had to be on point. Uh, shoes actually were taken off completely, and you know people started dancing barefoot. So it's that, and and also the music choices. Obviously, were able to be more free. You can dance to anything or no music at all. And how have, uh, ah. so how has the Seattle International Dance Festival? How is that? built community Uh, especially we've got people coming from all over the world Mm -hmm. they're not going to stay in community after the 17 days so Mm -hmm. how has this helped build community here in Seattle yeah so um, we don't only present international artists so we also make a big point about um, spotlighting Seattle local artists and national artists so the way the festival is structured is that we have two weeks and three weekends on the weekends 
is our international series, meaning those are national and international artists. And then during the week, it's a spotlight on Seattle and spotlight on contemporary ballet programs. Those are Seattle artists only. Um, and I think the community aspect in that comes in that we, with the international artists who are inviting, we're bringing other cultures and other, you know, influences into Seattle. And we're essentially bringing the world stage to Seattle, so you don't have to travel to go there. But you get to not only experience it, but you get to also talk to them and, um, you know, befriend them if you want to. A lot of them are always really open to becoming your Facebook friend if you want to or whatever and taking photos. And so I do think uh, there's a big aspect of, of just globalizing the community a lot more. Um, giving you the opportunity to to see things that you wouldn't see necessarily here in Seattle. Um, and then also really by focusing on the spotlight artists here in Seattle and um, making sure that we are um, open to anyone. So this is, um, we have open calls for submissions. Um, so any artist here in Seattle can submit. Yes, it is contemporary. So that's where we're going but um, we really try to make sure that out of all of the different areas in Seattle people are uh, you know known that they're invited to apply and be part of the festival. What accomplishment in your time as managing director of the Seattle International Dance Festival are you most proud of? So I mean it has grown immensely. Um, I know initially even before I came on it was uh, I think one weekend and now it's 17 days but even when I came on um, I believe we had it a week and two weekends so we've expanded it quite a bit. What I've found over the years here in Seattle with the the dance scene a little bit is that um, personally on the side of being a dancer myself is that there's these particular pockets of dance groups not you know or people who tend to oh they only take class at this studio they only take class at this studio Um, and they kind of seem to stay in their own little hub uh, and don't mix that much Um, and and then that happens a little bit with festivals too if a certain studio puts on a festival then you know they really try to reach out but most of the attendees come from you know, people who are going to that studio or who know the choreographer very well. I think what I'm really proud of with SIDF is that we are really trying to bridge those gaps and really, you know, grabbing everyone from every hub of the dance world in Seattle and allowing them to come and encouraging them to come and see other choreographers, other dancers from, you know, other studios and also obviously international artists. So 17 days, mm-hmm. how many spectators come for this? Um, we haven't done the numbers for this year, but um, so we present the international um, shows and so the international series and the contemporary ballet series at Broadway Performance Hall, which seats, I think, around 300. Um, so, you know, some nights as you know, sold out or full, others are not. Um, some of them are during the week, they're not quite as um, as full, but um, so it's in the thousands. And we um, we also present at the Erickson Theater, which is a little smaller, a little bit more intimate. And then doing Art on the Fly, which is the outdoor festival, um, we've, we get anywhere, I mean, we get always usually in the thousands because it's in connection with the Saturday market there. And so 
um, a lot of people who just happen to be at the Saturday market also come to Art on the Fly, which is really nice. So as managing director of the Seattle International Dance Festival, which happens every June, you've brought thousands of people together and different studios, uh, thousands of people together to watch dance and then very uh, quite a few different studios, not just from Seattle, but from around the world uh, to perform and get to know each other. Mm -hmm. My understanding is you've also done some other work uh, in the dance community to help bring people together. Tell me about uh, something you've started there to, to help dancers get to know one another. Uh, so I also co-produce another uh, smaller dance festival called Full Tilt. Um, and I am the artistic director uh, since this year for Converge Dance Festival, which uh, um, happens in May. Um, and with Converge this year, I took it over from um, other artistic directors before they started it about eight years ago, I believe. Um, I really wanted to make sure we we connect to um, more up-and-coming artists, choreographers, so kind of getting new voices heard in Seattle. Um, so that was kind of, we kind of focused on that a lot. Um, and we really wanted to make sure that we reach the wider community, not only the one, not only people who are able to pay $18 or $15 for a ticket or who can drive themselves down to Capitol Hill to see it. So we actually um, partnered this year with the U Heights building, or actually I think they're calling themselves the auditorium at the U Heights, which is in the university district. Um, they wanted to bring more dance in, and I wanted to have an outlet for dance to be seen by, by more people. So we partnered, and um, they were really generous in giving us free uh, rehearsal space, which for a small um, festival like ours is really where the most expenses come from. Um, in exchange, we did uh, an additional show at the auditorium, and we made it essentially free. It was pay, pay what you can. And uh, that was our way to really try to reach everyone, to make sure even if you don't know dance, you know, if it's free or if you pay a couple bucks, you, you might come see it. So. That was, I was really proud of that uh, happening. So you've got Seattle International Dance Festival, Full Tilt Dance Festival, mm -hmm. Converge Dance Festival. Mm -hmm. Through all three of these, you are bringing together the dancers. Uh, you're also bringing together the, the people who watch it. What have you learned in your efforts to grab people into the doors and grab dancers to be a part of your vision? What have you learned that could be helpful as somebody else is trying to bring somebody onto their vision of what building a community looks like. I've I've learned that dancers are or artists in general are um, amazingly generous. Um, they are you know want to they really want to share their craft and they they're usually very eager to get out and and come audition and um, you know sign on for something that they know they have to be in rehearsal for you know potentially two times a week for like three or four months, um, really spend their own time and, and obviously talent and sweat and everything for that. Um, knowing that the pay is very, very minimal, if even. I mean, these festivals um, are, you know, it's, it's really hard to get funding. Um, it's usually funded privately somehow through donations, which is wonderful. Um, and then there are some grant opportunities out there. Um, but especially with a festival like, let's say, Converge or Full Tilt, those are the smaller ones, you don't have the staff capacity to really 
really work on you know fundraising and development really strongly so you kind of have to work with what you have and usually that means you know you get a cut down somewhere and unfortunately often that means the the artists themselves get just very little um but i've just noticed that they've been so generous in 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 you know still being wonderful to work with and being thankful for having a platform and being able to show their show their work so you've been able to help uh, thousands of people and getting dancers to to give their art for very limited financial payback. What could somebody take away as they're trying to get somebody to to give themselves to a community or to a cause? So you're saying that it's because the dancers are generous, but I, I think you're being generous with the credit. To some degree, you must have done something that helped bring these people together. What could somebody who's trying to build community learn from what you've been able to do? Well, I think you you have to really like to to work in that area it's not it's not um it's rewarding in so many ways but it's not rewarding in 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 your bank account <laughs> unfortunately it's just the arts are uh, it's it's a tough it's a tough area you know they're they're not super funded uh, i want to say here in the us i know in europe that's uh, that's different um so that's hard you're hitting a lot of walls you're hitting a lot of doors that get shut in front of you and you just kind of have to be persistent but if you if you enjoy what you do and for me it is always like at the end uh, you know there are stressful moments but at the end when the festival comes together and, and I see the the emotions that it evokes or the the communication or the the interaction that it it evokes in people between the audience and the performers and and the choreographers um, it's always so rewarding that um, I every time I sign on for another year yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about the emotions that you felt as you've seen the fruits of your labor, as you've seen these festivals come together and expand under your watch. It's funny because every time you are done with a festival, like right now I'm in this part of like, okay, we just closed SIDF on the 22nd. So I'm like, it's there's, because there's so much work leading up to it and, and there are really stressful moments that it takes you really a long time to kind of realize, oh, we're done and oh, like maybe I should reflect on all the things. But with SIDF in particular, I mean, because we are able to bring in international artists, I'm in national and all the, the local ones, so I'm always blown away with the variety and the the immense talent that I get to see. Um, and, and there's really moments when I sit in the theater and it's dark. And, um, for example, we had this amazing group come in from India. Um, I watch them, and I'm like, wow, just like... I'm sitting in Seattle and I get to watch them. You know, that's it's it's really rewarding. Tell me a little bit about the Seattle dance community. So maybe a lot of the listeners aren't familiar with who's do, who, how big is it, where does it stand in the nation, what are the outlets, where can people see it. There's just so much that I personally don't know. I'd imagine the listeners also don't know. Mm-hmm. Fill us in, dance community here in Seattle. Tell us all about it. Yeah. Um, uh, it's 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 actually getting pretty large here in Seattle, I have to say. So I, I think you, you kind of need to look at it in, in, in different areas. One is like as a dancer and as like are there opportunities for um, dancers to come in and dance or also perform? And then, you know, what do we have, how we're standing in, in the nation? And, um, you know, we have obviously Pacific Northwest Ballet, PNB. Um, it's huge and uh, it's uh, – high quality we have they have a 
you know, huge audience. People come here to see them. Um, it's a wonderful ballet. Um, we have on the boards, which is also presents a lot of uh, wonderful dance, our festival, smaller festivals. So there are, uh, over the years, it's become um, a, a, a city that found its its place in dance actually i've heard i mean you know you have san francisco new york and chicago those are really the the three big cities but we are creeping along with them um i hear more and more from dancers professional dancers uh that they move to seattle to dance in seattle which is really exciting um, we have a really great program at Cornish for dance. We have a great program at the UW for dance. Also at the other, you know, smaller uh, community colleges usually have dance tracks. And um, also just generally other, other uh, you know, studios around town offer um, not only regular dance classes, but also geared towards the professionals um, who want to work and perform so that's that's really great so it's been really exciting to see how seattle is establishing its place in the nation for a dance city um in regard to dancing here just as a you know for kids or as a as an adult um more and more dance studios have been opening so i actually moved here and searched out a dance studio specifically that seemed very um very supportive also of older dancers or more mature dancers. Um, so uh, I was really excited of finding my personal dance home and it's called Exit Space in Green Lake, um, where it's really an open community and an, uh, a, a space where it doesn't matter how old you are or what size you are or what color or wherever you've trained before. If you have no training, they just you know, receive you with open arms and let you take classes and dance with people and perform, actually, too. They do a yearly performance as well. So that's really nice. So people are moving to Seattle for dance, and there's this growing community. What can Seattle as a whole learn from the subset of Seattle, which is Seattle's dance community? You know, as a dancer, just as any other artist, um, you, you really have to put your soul out there, you know, especially if you want to perform or if you are performing. So it's like you're, you you know, you have to be okay with being watched and, and, and putting, yeah, kind of putting all the rawness out there and being judged potentially. And um, I think that's a big thing for Seattle. You know, Seattle can be uh, somewhat on the passive aggressive side and artists are just, they're kind of like, here, this is what I am, you know, and if you want to talk to me about it later, great, you know? And I feel like that could maybe be a little bit more, that openness of, of being okay with um, what you're creating and, and that some people will like it and some people won't, and that's okay. Um, I think that's something overall CLIs could learn from. You, so you've danced in Europe, LA, Texas, now in Seattle. Is there anything striking that you've noticed about the Seattle dance community? Yeah, so uh, definitely um, some things that come to mind, especially over the last few years here in Seattle, is that I feel um, Seattle is really open to um if you want to dance, you can dance, and it doesn't matter um, what age you are um, or what body size or type you are. It's you don't have to fit into that typical mold of the dancer. Um, 
And I, I think Seattle's always been that way, but in particular, I found that in the last few years, especially for performance opportunities, um, those have really opened up to more mature dancers. It's 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 you know you see it more and more that um, dance pieces have. Uh, dancers in there who are in, you know in their early 20s or in like 17 and then you have somebody who's close to 50 and they're performing in the same dance piece which is really wonderful or just dance groups that are made out of only people over 40 um, and the same with also disability um, just opening up the dance world and the artistry um, to dancers of all abilities um, you know blind dancers dancers who can't hear who actually feel the the music through the vibration of the floor um dancers in wheelchairs who dance in their wheelchairs who dance out of their wheelchairs um just really amazing i think for that seattle is just a wonderful place and now that openness obviously benefits the the more senior dancer who might not otherwise get an opportunity or the person with a disability. Does that have any other effects on the rest of the community uh, or the audiences? I sure hope so. I mean, it's, you know, uh, again, touching upon the point of earlier where we're saying that, um, you know, as an artist, you have to put yourself out there. And um, especially if, if, if you are disabled and um, people might think, well, you're not really the typical look of a dancer. Um, I think just for them, for audience members and anybody who sees it, for that um, horizon to be opened up and to to experience um, something that maybe be not in their regular, uh, well, this is what I think dance should be like, um, and, and be surprised how wonderful um, art can be um, in surprising ways. And so I think it's, I, I, at least I hope so. I don't, I don't know, but I hope that it, it uh, really invokes an, the appreciation for each and every person and their art and their abilities. And I want to give you a chance for a plug. We, we just passed the Seattle International Dance Festival. So asking the listeners to remember 11 months uh, <laughs> to in June, they could come back to the Seattle International Dance Festival might not work. No. Uh, is there anything that uh, if somebody is listening and they're interested in, in dance or interested in um, finding community or interested in the arts that you would want to let them know that they have a place um, and where, where they could find it? Yeah, I mean, you can definitely look up our festival online at CLIDF.org. Um, we even though 11 months might seem a long time, but um, we we start our process usually in September, like of opening up applications again like that. So if you are a professional dancer, you can definitely reach out to us. We can also give you some other pointers of like where you might want to apply. Um, there's some really great online resources here in Seattle too. Um, DanceNet is one of them. If you uh, look that up online, they have kind of a community board where you can subscribe and then they'll send you all kinds of info about auditions or if you have an event that you would like to uh, put out they let you do that um, same with Facebook and social media there's a lot of uh, dance centered groups um, here in Seattle that you can join and, and get some information and find other you know people that are in the same um, uh, dance you know Rome than you are so we've talked about building community we've talked about uh, the work that you've done with uh, these dance festivals any concluding thoughts? Uh, keep dancing, keep creating. I think that's that's my final thoughts. It 
it brings joy not only to you, but to to you who's creating it. Uh, at least I hope so. Um, but also to the audience. I mean, anyone I talk to, even if they didn't like a, a certain piece they saw, they they thought about it or they talked to somebody about it, and it evokes conversation. And I think that's um, so important nowadays. Connie, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. Yeah, thank you for having me. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Now I want to hear from you. How are you building or finding community in this dynamic city? Who else do you want to hear from this season? Reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman, to let me know. Or come tell me in person at the next screening of On the Brink on Thursday, August 15th at the Neptune Theater. Head to www.onthebrinkmovie.com screenings to get tickets. Don't just take it from me. The stranger deemed it, quote-unquote, worth watching, and Crosscut noted that the history lesson here is one all Seattleites would benefit from learning. Go to www.onthebrinkmovie.com screenings to get tickets. Next week, we continue to look at finding community in a dynamic city. You will hear from Laura Elfline, who is bringing together a community of eco-friendly builders. You will learn about how to build community, no pun intended, and also some interesting facts about the environmental impact of materials in building homes. Wool as insulation? Cork for flooring? Find out more next week. Now, before we close out this episode, I want to thank Pamela Burton for her help with the audio and Ed Cromer for his work on the UW Foster School of Business blog. I also want to acknowledge the voice you heard at the introduction of this episode. That was Grammy-nominated artist Hollis Wong Ware, who appeared in Season 4 of Seattle Growth Podcast, which explored the past, present, and future of Seattle's music scene. If you haven't heard it yet, go to www.seattlegrowthpodcast.com and check out all the earlier episodes. I'm Jeff Schulman, and I thank you for joining me on this journey in the sixth season of Seattle Growth Podcast.